This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Pray with me. Lord, we hunger to hear you speak this morning. May we be refreshed and challenged by your word through your Holy Spirit. Fill us up that we might go from here to love and serve the world. Amen. Today's gospel reading is one of those that reminds us that Jesus himself lived in a specific historical time and place, one that had its own customs and social expectations. Similarly to how local people abide by a specific etiquette Excuse me. Similarly to how every local people abides by a specific etiquette, like how local drivers here know you can take the left turn on in the face of incoming traffic, otherwise known as the Pittsburgh left. What we see happening at home at this home of the Pharisee, where Jesus is attending dinner, is a distinct social pattern for that place in that time. And while the practice itself is different from what we're used to. I believe that Jesus' challenge to that social pattern is deeply relevant for us. We read that as the guests are are seated for dinner, Jesus pays attention to the way all the dinner guests strategically choose their places around the table, claiming the places of honor. Now, as someone who hasn't ever really put much stock into where I sit at dinner, this scene is hard to wrap my mind around. In first first century Jewish culture, though, where you sat as an invited guest at dinner really meant something. Picture with me couches formed in a U-shape with two to four guests reclining on each couch. The host would sit at the base of the U, kind of in the center, and the most honored guests would sit at his or her left or right. And immediately on down the line it went in decreasing social status. So as one commentator put it, power and prestige resided closest to the chair. So the nearer you sat to the host, the better, because it signaled your importance and everyone at the meal would know it. I imagine that there would have been some serious networking and relational currency being built at that end of the table. Those are the conversations you'd want to be in on, right? And though we might not resonate with the specific cultural weight of certain seats having higher status, we certainly are familiar with this dance, aren't we? The guests at this dinner party exemplify a way of being in the world that has permeated through every culture and community of people since the beginning. That furious scramble for validation, importance, financial stability, the pursuit of having enough to live a good life because that's what it's about, right? Most of us spend most of our lives this way, investing and trading in this economy, as it were. I'm not talking about the physical US economy, but rather the system of the world, the market that we all trade in, by which we compete for and carve out our own place of significance, security, and success. This economy certainly has to do with money and physical wealth, but it also trades in the currencies of social status, influence, recognition, accomplishments. We know that to do well in this economy, it's all about who you know. It's competing to get a moment of face time with the head of the company. It's the financial decisions we make or the people that we do or don't want to be seen with. 
and on and on. I wonder what it feels like for you to trade in this economy. As I have been preparing the sermon, even speaking these words now, I feel the stress and exhaustion in my body, realizing that I have given so much of my time and effort towards this, believing that if I can hoard and strategically trade with these resources, these currencies, then my family and I can have enough. We jokingly call it the rat race, but doesn't it really feel like that? What if there was a better way? What if trading in this economy, this market, where we leverage our influence and hoard our resources and scrap for the better seat at the table, what if that isn't all there is? I believe that Jesus' challenge to the members of this dinner party, understood in light of the gospel, offer us another way. The economy of the world, as I've been describing it, it could be said it is a zero-sum game. If you're unfamiliar with that term, it refers to a situation in which a person or group can win or succeed only at the expense of someone else. So if you win, that means I lose. If you get the seat of honor at the dinner party, that means, by definition, the rest of us do not. There is not enough to go around. There is a limited pool of resources, only a few places at the top. So all the things that we are taught by the world that we need for a good life the newest iPhone, a 401k, a home, a spouse, a well-paying and satisfying job where you're respected, financial security, the ability to travel and see the world. If these are the things that you need for a good life in the world's economy, then the hard truth is that not everyone can have a good life. This is a zero-sum game. These resources are so limited and often so unevenly distributed that only some people can win. Not all 50 applicants can get the job. Only one person can get the promotion. Not everyone will find a romantic match. The reality is your success in the world will likely be over and against the success of someone else. Just like there are only a few seats of honor at the dinner table, some people will have to sit in the lowest place. But if you work hard enough and with a little luck, it might not be you. This is the economy that Jesus is challenging in today's gospel reading. He interrupts the rat race, the endless striving for honor and success, to offer a different way of being in the world, the way of the kingdom. And this way of being in the world that Jesus offers, though it doesn't remove us from the world's economy that trades in wealth and status and influence, it strips those things of their power. Because we still have to navigate life in this economy with limited resources, often spread unevenly. But what the gospel does is strip the world's economy of its power to determine a life well lived. To say whether or not you have enough to live a good life. Returning to our dinner party, we see this in what Jesus challenges the guests to do. Take the lowest seat? On purpose? Why on earth? Some might read Jesus' instruction simply as strategic advice. It does stand to reason that it's a lot more humiliating to take the highest place and then be asked to move. And if you take a lower seat to start, well, then the only way to go from there is up. That makes sense. But I don't think that this is Jesus giving strategic advice on how to really end up with the best seat at the table, at least at this table. Jesus holds out a reward that's much grander than sitting in the seat of honor. But the way to get there is not by shoving others aside to get to the top, 
but by voluntarily stooping to the bottom. I believe this is an important glimpse into how the economy of the kingdom works over against the economy of the world. The value system we are accustomed to is flipped upside down. So it's not that it's inherently wrong or right to sit in the more honored seats. The challenge is to resist the urge to fight for those things as if that's where the good life is found. We hope for a different, a greater reward. As Father Kevin helpfully reminded me this week as we were talking about this sermon, it is still a race, but it's not a race to the top. It's a race to the bottom and for a different reward. According to the world's way of doing things, this is foolishness, is it not? Intentional self-sacrifice, going low, giving up for the sake of the other, a guaranteed way to lose whatever progress you've made towards success. But this is, of course, what Jesus himself did in coming to earth and going to the cross. And we are invited to follow him in it with a promise of reward at the resurrection. Still, this is a difficult call. Even for the many of us who have grown up as Christians, I imagine that we've all kept in view the world's vision of a good life and strategized how to get there. For myself, as I have discerned God's calling on my life to pastoral ministry, I enrolled in seminary to be formed and equipped for the work. But I would be lying if I said I also didn't consider how an MDiv would look on my future resume. As Josh and I have discerned parallel calls, a joint call to ministry for both of us, I've struggled with feeling a sense of competition with him. If there's only one opportunity, who gets it? I often function as if I'm in a zero-sum game and there can only be one winner. So when the world's economy is where we've traded for so long, when we are so used to living like this, how do we actually do this? How do we learn to trade in the economy of the kingdom instead? In our reading from the Epistle to the Hebrews for today, I believe we find the key. It's one brief verse, Hebrews 13, 5, but it hit me like a ton of bricks when I was preparing for this message. In verse 5, the writer compels the readers to keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And at my first glance, to be honest, I couldn't see the connection. I, I would have expected the writer of Hebrews to say something like, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God will provide for what you need or because he will take care of you. Trust him and you will always have enough to get by. That kind of assurance would make a lot more sense to me. That seems like it would be a real comfort. But that's not where the author of Hebrews goes. The reason, the reason the writer gives not to cling to money, and I think this could be expanded to include influence, status, success, all of those currencies of the world's kingdom that we've been talking about. The reason we are not to cling to those things is not because God promises to provide. Instead, the emphasis is that our riches are found entirely elsewhere. What makes us secure is not our financial status or any of those currencies traded in the world's economy. Instead, Hebrews urges us to keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So not because we know we'll always have enough to pay the bills or because things will work out in the end, but simply because God is with us and has promised to stay with us. 
For me, this cuts to the heart because I am now forced to reckon with whether or not I actually believe that that is enough. That his presence with me, his commitment to being with me, that he's chosen to dwell in me and among us as his people, that that's enough. That even if I don't get the seat of honor, whatever that means for me or for you, whether or not I get to have a leadership role or if people know my name or if we get to buy a house that we love or if our finances are stable, is it enough for me that God is with me? I am learning slowly that it's a yes. Every time life throws a wrench in our plans, there have been a lot of wrenches lately, when I've felt absolute heartbreak over the loss of friends, every time I have lost while someone else has won, the Lord has been with me. There has been no limit, no drying up of his love or of his tender patience with me. St. Paul has a name for this, and I think it's especially poignant here. In his letter to the Ephesians, he describes the gospel as receiving the boundless riches of Christ. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, the endless treasures available to us in Christ. If the economy of the world is a zero-sum game, where the resources needed to live a good life are so limited, so scarce, that we need to fight over them, the resources of the kingdom, those riches are overflowing. What economists might call a positive-sum game, meaning more for you doesn't mean less for me. There is more than enough to go around. Because what we receive, of course, is Christ himself, and in him, divine love, forgiveness, reconciliation, the very presence of God. These currencies of the kingdom, these things that offer us stability and enable us to thrive, are given in abundance to all who would receive them. Because Jesus gives himself to us fully and without measure. And it's having received these riches, having received Christ, that enables us to trade in the economy of the kingdom the same way. Because if God sees, so sees and loves me, so sees and loves you, to have committed himself to you as he has, to have become human, to have gone to death for you. To return to our dining room in the first century Jerusalem house of the Pharisee, why would we grasp for the place of honor? What sense would it make to constantly scan for opportunities to promote ourselves in the eyes of others or increase our status? Because if this is true, if I am really living from a place of abundance rather than scarcity, then I can take the lowest seat. I can offer the place of honor to someone else. What's more, I can even be generous to others financially and with other resources. I can answer Jesus' call to care for the poor and those in need, those in prison, those suffering, because my riches will not decrease if I do. I will not have less as a result of my giving. The way of the kingdom is a positive sum game. And this is good news. For all of us, wherever we find ourselves in the world's economy, this is good news. Because for those of us who feel squashed by the world's economy, always on the bottom rung of the ladder with limited resources, who have only ever sat in the lowest seats at the table and look enviously at those in the places of honor, the gospel is a message of relief. Relief that wealth doesn't have the final say over if you and your family can thrive. Relief from the instinct to hoard resources. Relief from the sting of envy over others who have more. 
relief in the form of solid ground to stand on, God's personal presence and commitment to you in the midst of shifting circumstances. So for those of us who feel squashed by the world's economy, we are invited to step into the kingdom where there are riches enough for everyone, even for you. Conversely, for those of us who function quite well in the world's economy, not just the super rich over there, but us here in the pews who have financial security, the connections, the right last name, any of us who know what the seat of honor feels like, if we're honest, the gospel message to you is one of release. You are released to be generous, to not cling tightly to your resources, to actively look for ways to dignify and lift up others, to sit in the lowest seat, as it were, on purpose for the sake of others. This is not foolishness, as it may seem to the world. It's the way of the kingdom. So I don't know which you need this morning, relief or release, maybe some of each. The gospel of Christ offers us both. The reason I told the story to the kids about my splurge on applesauce in my first year of college is because this is an image that keeps coming back to my mind. I remember being a kid, feeling like those little applesauce servings were never enough, dreaming of what it might feel like to drown in applesauce. The kingdom of God is like having more applesauce than you know what to do with. Because we may never have enough in the economy of the world. We may always be eating out of those little applesauce cups. But God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We have Emmanuel, God with us. May each of us learn to trust more and more that in Christ we have riches without measure, and there is truly enough for everyone. Amen.